I confess it's a, it's, it's a daunting thing to preach on passages like this. Um, th- this is such a beautiful, a beautiful text. Um, and if you come to these places like, what more can I say? And how do I preach for 40 plus minutes? Uh, you know it's going to be plus. So, um, But the, the words are stated so beautifully. I mean, just so movingly, so succinctly so powerfully, so perfectly. I mean, to, to try to expand on them, to expound them, is to run the risk of spoiling them. And I feel that this morning. And so, I, there, I mean, when you, when you read commenta- commentaries on this, this chapter and you hear preachers that preach on it, they, they run out of adjectives, run out of superlatives in describing 1 Corinthians 13. It's just so rich. And so one commentator said this, it's, It is one of Paul's finest moments. Indeed, let the interpreter beware, lest too much analysis detract from its sheer beauty and power. That doesn't help me. Uh, beware. Now, it's the, fav- it's the favorite chapter of the Bible for many people, maybe for some of you, and, and for good reason. I understand why? It, it is a passage that even those that don't really have much familiarity with the Bible, they, they know 1 Corinthians 13. They may not know where to find it, but they, they know the words. It's, it's often uh, quoted in weddings, and so people hear it in that context. It's, it's something that is, is beautiful to, 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 to print and to frame and to hang on walls, and so we see that. I, was, I said something along those lines in our small group. Uh, Wednesday night uh, that, that you'll often find this in people's houses on the walls and Brooks like pointing behind me and, like 18 inches from my head is a little st- on a stand is this print and I, I didn't even notice that. I'm very observant in the decorations in our house but uh, so but but understandably it's it's wonderful and it's beautiful just all on its own as this kind of single unit it can stand on its own two feet this chapter and so it, 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 and, and, it, and so it is powerful. It's powerful to be read in a wedding. It's powerful to use in counseling, and particularly in helping you know, in marriage counseling or something like that, or in any just helping in reconciliation. It's powerful to be used in any number of other settings. But I think there is there's wonderful profit for us, church, as we've been walking through this letter now for uh, almost a year, um, and, and as we get to see it in its particular context. That's... There's great benefit to us in, in, in seeing it this way. And so we, and it, it is written in a, in for a particular context. We need to understand that. Paul didn't just head into the hills one weekend for a songwriting retreat and then and come back with this beautiful love song for love. That's not, that's not what this is. It is it's, he's writing to a particular church at a particular time that was facing some really particular challenges and difficulties and problems in their congregation and so he's desperately trying to to show this fractured church it's full of self-centered sinners like us he's trying to show them there's a better way to live there's a better way to live together in other words this this chapter isn't written primarily for lovers it's not for those that are just kind of wanting to bask in this warm glow of mutual affection that's not what it's for we treat it that way sometimes but it's it's written for the loveless it's it's written for a church to a church that just can't get along and 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 so we're in this section of first corinthians and we have been for a few weeks now 
where Paul is dealing with the subject of spirituality and spiritual things and spiritual gifts. And so there were all kinds of problems in the Corinthian church associated with this matter of spirituality. And so, in particular, many in the church were exaggerating, inflating the importance of of certain spiritual gifts, like tongues, as we're going to see, particularly in chapter 14. And, And so many of those who had these kind of more spectacular uh, gifts, impressive gifts as they saw them, they felt superior to those who didn't have those gifts. And then those who, who lacked those gifts were tempted to feel unimportant and, and useless in the church and inferior. So we, we dealt with that in chapter 12 over the last couple of weeks. So the church was, was divided between, the, we've said, the spiritual haves and the have-nots. And this kind of this kind of spiritual one-upmanship in the church was just tearing them apart. They were, they were horribly divided. And so in chapter 12, remember, Paul, Paul reminds them, though they're wonderfully diverse, and that's God's good design for the church, different gifts and different offices, uh, all kinds of differences, there, there isn't to be any kind of spiritual stratification along those lines of gifts. What they have in common, that common confession, that common source of their gifting, that common aim to do good, the the common experience of the power of the Spirit in their lives, that's what was most important, what they shared. And even in the diversity they had, it wasn't intended by God to, to make them separate from themselves, it was intended by God to make them interdependent upon one another. So we've been, we saw that in chapter 12, and then when we get to chapter 14, in a couple weeks, He's going to get very practical in his guidance to the church about how these gifts, particularly certain gifts, are to function in the, in the life of assembly and some of the real questions that the church there was wrestling through. Now, but in between those two chapters, we have chapter 13 on love. Now, it's interesting, and maybe you picked up on this as we read it together or you thought about this, but there's, there's no explicit mention of the church, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, in these verses. So because of that, some, you know, in the in sandwich between chapters 12 and 14, we sort of expect there to be this continuity, but some have regarded this chapter as being really just disconnected. It's, just, it's kind of a parenthesis, a, a digression for Paul in this argument that he's making. It's just kind of stuck here between these two chapters on spirituality and spiritual gifts, but not really connected to them. Listen, that's not the case at all. Not at all. Every word in this chapter is chosen with this particular situation in mind. I think that will be evident as we walk through it. This isn't an unrelated digression uh, from the discussion on gifts. This is the whole crux of the argument as he's talking about spirituality and spiritual gifts. Love, love, love. And so because the problems, and I want you to see, the problems in in the Corinthian church, it wasn't... It wasn't uh, on account of spiritual gifts. What I mean is there there was no fault with the gifts. That's not the problem. These grace gifts were given by God for the the good of the church, for the the glory of Christ. They're wonderful gifts. They're gifts given by a generous God to the church. So the problem's not with the gifts. The problem lay in the Corinthians' attitudes towards the gifts and their use in the church. And so they were approaching uh, uh, these wonderful gifts in very wrong-headed ways. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 
is addressing is really about. Spiritual gifts are given by God to be used in love. That's his point. Without love, they're worthless. And that's what holds the section together. So if you could go back, just look back to chapter 12, the end of it, verse 31. See how this whole chapter is bracketed in 12 and 14. So earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he says, I'll show you a still more excellent way. Now that more excellent way, as we're going to see, is love. And then you go into chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. And now he comes back to gifts and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So you see they're connected. They're not at odds. Gifts are wonderful. Pursue them, pursue them, pursue them. But there's a better way. There's something more important than gifts, and it's love. That's his point. And that phrase in chapter 12, verse 31, a, a still more excellent, that's, that's very emphatic in the Greek. And it, it, it kind of stands out in English, but it, it means something that's truly outstanding, amazing. It is, it is something beyond comparison. It's, it's, it's a very strong statement here. And you can imagine these Corinthians hearing this letter read for the first time. Remember, this was a letter written to a local church in Corinth there. And they would have received it on a, on a given day and time. And it would have been read in that congregation as they're gathered together. And so you can imagine them, these people who are so excited about their spectacular gifts and tongues and prophecy and knowledge and all these things. And they hear these words of Paul at the end of chapter 12 read to them. They're probably salivating. <laughs> just, just can't wait to hear what Paul has to say. We have all these amazing gifts, at least some of us do, the really spiritual ones do. Uh, but we have these gifts in our church, and, and yet Paul's saying there's something even better, something far, far, far more wonderful than even these, than these gifts that we have. And they're sitting on the edge of their seats, mouths open, waiting with anticipation. Come on, Paul, tell us. Tell us what it is. Tell us what's this fantastic secret you're going to share with us now. Another spectacular gift. What is it that's far, far, far greater than these spectacular gifts and Paul's word to them is love <laughs> love now, I just imagine there being a little bit of a letdown for them um, love <laughs> that's it <laughs> it's disappointing we wanted something big I thought you had something for us but it's not a letdown as Paul's going to show very clearly love is far 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 beyond all these gifts that they're so excited about and they're so proud of. Love is far better than all of the spiritual things that they are arguing about and dividing over. And listen, church, love is far better, far, far better than the things, many of the good things that we also get so excited about and pride ourselves over. Love is better than the things that we tend to argue about and divide over as well. And we're going to see that clearly today. Love is the most excellent way. That's what he's saying. So we're going to see three compelling reasons why love is the most excellent way this morning. And the first one is this. Love is the most excellent way because love is more important than the gifts. It's more important than the gifts. See this in verses 1 to 3. Now, the, again, the Corinthians, they prided themselves in their giftedness. And they were indeed blessed by God with wonderful gifts. We saw this at the beginning of the letter, you know, back in April or May, whenever we started. And he began the letter thanking God for them, thanking God for, quote, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. And this was, this was, this grace showed up in this church in this particular way that they were enriched in him in all speech, 
and all knowledge, had knowledge, had these speaking gifts, and, and the fact that they were, quote, not lacking any gift. They were gifted. They had the gifts. Paul's not blowing smoke there. He's not flattering there, flattering them. This was cause for thanksgiving. And he's genuinely grateful to God. They had gifts. That's wonderful. But the gifts, however many they had, to whatever degree they possessed them, same for us, they're useless without love. That's his point here. Worthless. And so to make this point, he, he employs some hyper, hyperbole, some exaggeration. He, he, he makes this... He speaks in the first person note in, in, in verses 1 to 3. So here he is, this leading apostle who had all of these gifts that he mentions here in greater degrees than they did. He says, you speak in tongues, not as much as I do. He's going to say that in chapter 14. Like, I, I, I have these gifts in, in, in greater degree. And so he's using himself as this, as this example, but he's presenting some of these hypothetic, some hypothetical examples of these most extreme gifts in extreme ways, excessive good deeds, as we're going to see down in verse 3. And so he, he's doing this to teach them this formula that they needed to get ingrained in their minds. Everything, everything minus love equals nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. That's his point here. So look at the first example. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Again, speaking in tongues. This was, this was what the Corinthians got most excited about. This was the most wonderful thing that happened to them from their estimation. This is, this is what they prided themselves in, this supernatural ability. This was the distinguishing mark of their spirituality. And, and what it, okay, we've said this, I think, before, but let me just clarify what the gift of tongues was or is it, it's this supernatural ability to speak to speak in another language that you haven't studied or learned but a, a, a real known language and to do that and that's that's the supernatural ability to do that and so and and so so it's not just babble it'd be like if I could you know just suddenly start speaking in Portuguese fluently I've never studied a lick of Portuguese in my life and and and, and and for the sake of communicating the gospel to a Portuguese person. And, and so that, that would be like that. And so that's a wonderful gift. And Paul says, though, if I could speak in all of the tongues of the world, if I had the gift of tongues to a degree you can't even imagine, if I could, not just that, but I could speak even in angelic languages, whatever those are. He says, if I could, if I could do all that and not exercise this incredible gift in love, it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing. And that's, it says noising gong or clanging cymbal there. Corinth was known for their bronze works and, and, and they had craftsmen that worked in bronze and so, so they would fashion these, 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 um, these metal kind of amplifiers and cymbals and they would use these in pagan worship. So these people are used to hearing this clanging of these, of these instruments and and so they made this deafening noise, but it wasn't music. They're not tuned uh, like maybe our cymbals would be today. So I'm not insulting Ellis by saying that cymbals are an awful noise. Um, but, but this was just, just noise, just deafening noise. And so Paul's point is no matter how gifted we are, this is what we become if we don't use our gifts in a loving way. 
just clash, crash, bang, bang, you know, this kind of thing. It's just noise. And then he uses another example. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Note the repeated use of all in this verse here. It's emphatic. This is extreme gifting. Everything, all. Prophetic powers, just the supernatural ability to, to speak a message received from God, to have insight into, and the ability to communicate about things from God's point of view. That's, that's this gift of prophecy. And so I just, I know Howard mentioned something along these lines in Sunday school, but I know everybody wasn't here. Don't confuse the real gift of prophecy with the quackery we see around us today. And there's a lot of it out there right now. And, it's, and, and churches and Christians are being kind of succumbed to this. this, this these, the, there are these, quote, pastors and prophets who are professing to speak for God and having these words from the Lord about America and about all kinds of things. No, that's not what this is. This is not this kind of fallible, oops, I missed it, it's okay, I'm still a prophet. No. The, 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 those, those, quote, pseudo-prophets today, they're just... They're just responding to itching ears or saying what itching ears want to hear and and so just be careful they're just getting clicks getting views anybody with a cell phone can take video of themselves and not, these things get passed around and they they take all right all right this is but this this is not what the gift of prophecy is that is not what the gift of prophecy is this is and what paul's saying here is he's holding up this is prophetic powers to the nth degree and and so this is paul says suppose I can even understand all mysteries, all knowledge. I can know everything about everything because God reveals it to me. Comprehensive grasp of the mysteries of God and the universe. A a true know-it-all. I mean, remember from our study in, in this letter, knowledge was this sacred cow in Corinth. They loved, they were so proud of their, quote, knowledge. And they boasted in this. So he says, if I have all of this. And he goes on, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. This is faith the likes of which we've never seen. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't that saving faith by which a believer trusts in Christ for salvation. This is this extraordinary gift that some believers have to trust God for those things that seem to be impossible. Particularly when it comes to the work of His church and the, and the progress of the gospel. And so if I have all faith Paul says, you could have all of that, I could have all of that, and I don't have, and if I don't have love, I say, I have nothing. Nothing. I'm a big, fat zero. And so the greatest gifts manifested in the most thrilling ways without love, he says they're useless. Love is far more important than the gifts. And then there's a the third example. So if I give away, again, note the, that, that extreme example, all that I have. If I'm in this insanely generous philanthropist, not really even that because they would still have something to give later, but just if I give everything I own so that I'm utterly destitute, I'm completely penniless, I give all of it away. And he says, if I deliver my, my body to be burned, if I sacrifice my own life in this dramatic fashion, uh, for the sake of the gospel through martyrdom, I think is what he's saying. So if I do all that, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. 
mean, these are devastating statements. But they're absolutely true. All the wonderful gifts, all the noble sacrifices you can imagine without love are worthless. They don't mean a thing. Doesn't matter what we say, tongues. Doesn't matter what we know, prophetic powers. It doesn't matter what we do, sacrifice. Without love, it's all empty. It's vain. It's useless. Paul's obviously touching on some very sensitive areas uh, for, the, for the Corinthian church there. These are, these are laser-guided bombs for that particular assembly and the things that they were real proud of and they were boasting in and they divided over. And so that these were matters that, that, that they, things that made them feel secure in their spirituality, things that they thought were their greatest strength. These are the things that really mattered. But he says to them, without love, they don't mean a thing. Love is more important than all the things that you seem to care most about. Good things, but they're not ultimate things. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this this week, and I wonder if Paul were to write verses 1 to 3 to us, what might he say? If he, if he, could, if he could, could direct them to Baraka Bible Church in 2021, what, might, what are some things he might say? If I, if I understand and if I tenaciously hold to every point of doctrine in the BBC doctrinal statement, if I, if I know my systematic theology so well that I could give lectures around the world on it, if I, if I can explain the finer points of eschatology and give an articulate defense of cessationism, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I, if I listen... Church, if I listen to hours of sermons and podcasts and, and stay up on all the Christian blogs on the blogosphere and I, and I have bookshelves lined with solid Christian books and I've read some of them multiple times but I don't have love, I am nothing. Here's a personal one. If I preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, year after year through, through the Bible but I don't have love, I am nothing. It's all for nothing. I think of the tragic example that we've seen of, of uh, Ravi Zacharias recently. I'm not trying to just throw something at it, but I, this, this appearance of so much, but it's, there's no love. There's this lack of love. It's nothing. If I use social media to defend Christianity and attack error and I put forth strong opinions and defend right doctrine from professing Christians who I think are in error on the internet, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a noisy post, a meaningless tweet. If I know my Bible, I read it every day, have lengthy portions of it memorized, can answer Bible trivia, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give generously to the church and support Grace Promise faithfully and, and, and gift and support other ministries, but don't have love, I'm nothing. We could go on and on. Now, listen, these are wonderful things that we just talked about. We want to we give ourselves to these things. We want to be active in these things. We want to we be Bible readers. We want to know theology. We want to we understand doctrine. We want to explain it. We want to be able to defend the truth. We want these things to flourish in our ministry. We want to be generous. So it's not love versus those things, those strengths. But if all of our strengths, you put them all together and you subtract love, you have zero. That's the equation that Paul puts forth here. 
That's frightening. But this is the constant battle we fight, isn't it, church? To think that because of our status or our privileges or our position or our reputation or our gifts or our ministry because of something we do really well, therefore we must be really important individually or as a church. I am or we are superior. We're cut above the rest. Paul tells the Corinthians and us who are thinking like that, you, you think you're big, but if love doesn't shape your life and your work and your ministry, you're nothing and you gain nothing. Without love, however impressive our, quote, strengths are as a church or as Christians, they will only ever be liabilities to us and to others. All right. So maybe 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't belong on our walls. <laughs> it's not the kind of encouraging, feel-good Bible passage with all these happy thoughts of love after all. This is devastating to me, to us. This is, none of us, none of us values love like this. Can we agree to that? None of us sees love as important as God sees it. We have those competitors. We have those values. We have those things that are so important to us that we put up against love. We care far more about other things. Good things, yes, but lesser things. So first reason, love is the most excellent way. Is love is more important than the gift. Second reason is this, is love is more powerful than the gifts. Verses 4 to 7. Now, we get to the part that we really love to quote and to write out in calligraphy, and it's beautiful and all of that. But if, the, if, this, if this whole chapter were kind of this beautiful ring, then these verses, verses 4 to 7, they're the center stone. This is the part that's big and radiant and full of sparkle. This is, this is so beautiful. There, there's, there's so much in these just four verses. We could spend weeks, we could spend months unpacking this together. Don't worry, we're not going to. We are going to take one other week. I had like one week of margin in the preaching schedule between now and Easter. And, and so I'm going to use it right here in chapter 13 because this is so, so good. So next week we're going to come back and just focus on verses 4 to 7. This, this central part of this central chapter in this letter. And so we'll look at that next week really close. So this morning it's going to be kind of a superficial flyover of these verses. Not in the sense of the chapter. but uh, So I'm not going to comment on the words and the phrases here. But, but in this context, what Paul's saying here is that love is more powerful than the gifts. And I want to show you what, what I mean. So first, we've been talking about love. We haven't even defined love. We, somebody prayed for this this morning in our elder prayer time. That we, we praying that, that we would understand what it is because there's so many counterfeits and so many false ideas of love in, in the wider culture and even in evangelicalism. But most of you know, if you know anything about Greek, you probably know the word agape. This is, this is the word for love here. There are several different words for love in Greek that Paul could have chosen that were in use at his time. Probably about six pretty common words. You know, love of a, of a man and woman, love of a parent-child, love of friends, just different types of love. But there was a more rare word, agape. And, and, and this is the word that's given to us by God in the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. This is a gift to the church and and so it was quite rare before the writing of the New Testament, but then afterwards, it's, it's all over the scriptures, and it's, and it's all over Christian writing and teaching since. And so agape, it's used 116 times in the New Testament, 75 times by Paul, 
But this, this is what agape, this is what this love means. So this is our definition. It's love that seeks to benefit others, even at great cost to oneself, regardless of whether it's deserved. Sorry, I should have put this on the slide. But love that seeks to benefit others, even at great cost to oneself, regardless of whether it's deserved. And so what we're saying, it's not love that's kind of drawn out of us by by desire of the one loved, desire for them. It's not love that's based on the loveliness or the lovability of the one loved. It's love that's lavished on others without a thought to their worthiness or not. That's, that's, that's this agape love. It's God's love. It's God's, this is how God loves us, His free, sovereign grace that sets value on us even though we are unworthy and undeserving sinners. It's seen most clearly in Christ. Listen to this quote from Leon Morris. He says, Christians thought of, this is in context of 1 Corinthians 13, Christians thought of love, agape, as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. So God's love for us in Christ is the perfect demonstration of this, this agape. And that's what then is to shape our love for one another. He goes on. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner, Romans 5.8, has been transformed by that experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the objects of God's love and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. He comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. It is this love that the apostle unfolds here in 1 Corinthians 13. So that's what we're talking about. So agape, it's not just some vague feeling of unity and brotherhood. It's not just kind of warm fuzzies uh, for other people. It's not, it's not mutual affection between romantic lovers. It's not even just this kind of natural affection of a parent toward a newborn child or something like that. This is love regardless of, of, of deserving it. Love for the guilty, love for the sinful, love for the unlovable. Love that sees others in the church equally unworthy as we are, yet redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's what we're talking about. So with, with that said, what does Paul tell us about this love, agape? And again, I'm, I'm going to comment on all the individual aspects of this. We'll save that for next week. But just see it in its beauty and simplicity and power here. Two positive statements. Love is patient and kind. It's patient and kind. Then he, then he lists several negative statements. Now, these negative statements, they're pointing to some of the greatest faults in the Corinthians. We've, we've seen these in our study so far, but these, these words are like knives thrust into the Corinthians' consciences here. These are the sins that they were most guilty of. And I think we'll recognize these are some of the sins that we struggle with most. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Back to the positive. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
This is love. This is what love can do. This is what love is able to accomplish. It can cope. It can overcome. It can help us in every situation. And so see Paul's point here. Here's a, here's a church that's just stuffed full of gifts, overflowing. They have all the gifts any church could ever want. No spiritual gift do we lack, and we have them in large measure. This is how they boasted. And yet, they're jealous and quarrelsome and boastful and selfish and disorderly, particularly in the way they're related to one another. They had the gifts, but they're immature. They're sinful. And they're divided. And Paul says, love can do what your gifts can never do. You've got all the gifts, but you can't get along with each other. You, you, you can't forgive each other. You can't serve each other. You can't help each other. You, what good are your gifts without love? Love is more powerful than the gifts. Love, what good are your gifts if the church is divided into these little groups that are fighting against one another? What, what good are your gifts if unbelievers are just laughing at you because you can't get along? What good are your gifts if you can't keep your temper? Love is so much more powerful. Listen, love is where you see the true powerful working of the Spirit of God among us. It doesn't look at a church and say, this is such a wonderful church. They have all these kind of spectacular gifts that are happening. God looks at a church and says, these are people who forgive one another. These are people who are patient with one another, who help one another, who, who love each other. This, this is what really matters. This is what I value most. This is what's truly powerful doesn't make the headlines. No Christian magazines are sending out reporters to interview us and, and just this, this hot story or something like that. But there is, this is where true strength, true spiritual vitality, true power of a church is really seen and shown. It's love. Love is more powerful than gifts. So much more powerful. So it's not just more important. It's more effective. It's more life-changing. It's more more dynamic, it's more powerful. All right, third reason, finally, quickly. Why love is the most excellent way, and it's this, is that love is more lasting than the gifts. Love is more lasting than the gifts. Corinthians are a rather short-sighted people. We've, again, already bumped up to this, in the, against this in this letter. They, they needed a, the long view. They needed the perspective of eternity. And so, so the things that they cared most about Paul's going to say, those are fading away. And the one thing that you are neglecting is what's going to last forever. So that's his point as he closes out this chapter. Things, listen, things that last forever are the things that matter most. Uh, we, as parents, I think we understand. We, we're trying to help our kids, and we're trying to fight for this in our own life, to have a perspective. What are the things that really last? Those are the things that are really important. And, and, and so, <coughs> certainly in the view of eternity. So spiritual gifts are important, yes, but they have an expiration date. And in contrast, look at verse 8, love never ends. Never ends. Love is greater because it lasts longer. It lasts forever. So he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease as for knowledge, it will pass away. All of those gifts, they have a shelf life. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. All right. 
I know there is all kinds of debate and discussion on this verse here, right here, verse 9 and 10, and in this section, and within evangel evangelicalism, among friends, among allies, and the, for the gospel. But, but the, the, I, I, listen, the main idea is clear enough. Love is greater than gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge. Love is greater even than faith and hope. Why? Because it endures longer. It endures forever. Love is eternal. So that's what's clear. We all agree on that. What's not as clear is, and where much of the disagreement lies, is in how much less will the others last? I don't know if that's right grammar or not, but how, how long are prophecy, tongues, knowledge, faith, hope to remain? Or maybe say it this way. Clearly, they last less than forever. Love is what lasts forever. But how much less than forever? That's the question. Now, there are basically two views on this. I'm going to try to be quick here, but I, I want to, I think we do have questions here. So, and there's a whole spectrum of possibilities within these two broad brush views. So don't think like the way that I'm painting them is, is all of the possibilities. There's, there are people who are on the spectrum here, but one view is that all of the gifts will last until Christ returns. The other view is that certain gifts have ceased and, so, and the rest of the gifts will last until Christ returns. So the, the kind of the big labels are continuationism, you see continues, uh, or cessationism, ceases, ceased. And so the, the idea, th those, are, those labels, are, labels are indicating the duration of something. And what is that? Of what? The, of the sign gifts, of those spectacular gifts, like tongues and prophecy and miracles. So continuation, continuationists believe that these gifts have continued on since Pentecost, since they were first given to the church, and they will continue on until Christ returns. And again, there are all different shades of, of understanding within those that are continuationists. Some, some say these, these are, should be very common today. They should be happening all the time in our churches. In some forms of Pentecostalism, we, we see this expressed. Others say they're very rare. They could happen. So, so they, they leave the possibility for them happening today. But they're, they're not likely to happen. They're not normal for sure. And so, so you have continuation. But they say... They're going to continue till Christ returns. Cessationists believe that, that they, these sign gifts were foundational, in, uh, they had, had a foundational role in the establishment of the church, in the confirmation of the scriptures, uh, in the affirmation of the apostle, apostolic ministry. But they ceased as the New Testament was completed, as the church was rooted and established. So let me just say, all right, those, so that's kind of the spectrum of the, where the disagreement and discussion lies within the church. But you say, Paul's not setting out to answer that question here. Can I just relieve you of that right now? That's not the question the Corinthian believers were struggling with or asking. Otherwise, he would have spelled it out very clearly. Here's a list of gifts that will go on until X time, and then they will cease. Here's another list of gifts that will go on until this time, and then they will cease. He doesn't do that. He could have easily settled this for us, but that's not the question they're struggling with. And so we have hints here, but we have no clear answers. Uh, we, we can't base our complete argument on this, on a hint. And that's sort of what we have here. And so we, we have to gather other biblical and historical data to work through this theological question. And we're not, we don't have time to exhaust all of that and do a full, thorough treatment. But let me just say up front, I am unapologetically cessationist. And as a church, this is, how, this is what we confess in our doctrinal statement. I think the arguments from Scripture and history uh, in support of this view are stronger than those that oppose it. 
but I am not militant about this. I have good friends that disagree with me on this. I, I, pray, I pray my views are never impo- more important to me on this than they are love for brothers and sisters, even those who disagree with me in, in or outside of Baraka. Some of you I know disagree with me on this. How terrible to use a passage like this as ammo to destroy a brother or sister and be guilty of the very thing that Paul's arguing against here. And so I, I understand that's the point. So the hint we get here, as it relates to this discussion, the crux of the debate is to that word perfect, the perfect. What is he talking about? Answering this doesn't solve the question, but it's a thread, a thread in the fabric of this issue. And so it's an important thread. And so is the perfect a reference to the second coming of Christ? So when Jesus returns, all that is partial, imperfect will disappear. We can understand that view. That's probably the more common view. Or is the perfect something else? Is it something earlier? The word perfect, it's often translated in other places, mature. And it it can carry that sense. I think that seems to fit the the situation here. Paul is going to illustrate the very next verse... He's going to use an illustration about maturity, a child growing into an adult. And so the perfect may be this time early in church history when the church reached a certain level of maturity, a state of kind of heightened knowing and understanding when they they understood their their identity and and, and it was grounded enough that, that, that the foundational gifts like prophecy and tongues were no longer necessary. So the perfect, it's connected to the establishment of the church, the completion of the New Testament, the fading out of the apostles and the prophets who, Paul says in Ephesians, were the foundation of the church. So once the foundation is laid, the, the, the church is in, is in maturity then. That's the way I take this passage. Now I think history certainly favors this view. I, it's hard to argue against the fact that, that, that these sign gifts started vanishing from the scene even before the New Testament was finished. And so they've been gone now for almost 2,000 years. And there's essentially no historical evidence that the miraculous gifts continued on in churches once they were established. Now, there are not even many continuationists who would argue against the historical record here. But many, some do contend that these gifts have been since rediscovered in recent years. And I mean, I'm saying modern history in the last hundreds of years and are now active again. And so they don't deny that they weren't in use for many, many centuries. Listen, the position I hold and many of you hold, to say that, to say that miraculous sign gifts have ceased, it's not, listen, it's not to say that the Spirit doesn't work in very powerful and supernatural and miraculous ways today and has throughout church history. Those are not the same. He still heals. He still uses all kinds of supernatural means to get our attention. He, can, he is not limited. He's not like, well, I, got, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm limited on what. He can do whatever he wants to do. Spirit is free and powerful, and he, and he works in mighty ways. But that's different from saying that these gifts continue. And so healings still happen, yes, but there aren't gifted healers like we see in the early church, in the, in the scriptures, that, that just had the ability to heal at will, a command. There was no have enough faith. It was just, you just healed. You're healed. There, there, there aren't people gifted to speak in other languages like we see in tongues here and languages they've never heard or never studied before. There aren't people that are receiving these new revelations from God, new uh, uh, infallible revelations from God. No, 
tongues, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, those big three in Corinth, they won't last, this is what he's saying here, as long as faith, hope, and love. So there's this differentiation. This is one of the reasons I think perfect isn't the return of Christ because that erases the distinction between those, those miraculous gifts and faith and hope. So he's saying there, there are three things that will end, three things are going to go on, then there will be two things that end and one thing that goes on into eternity. So there's some differentiation there. All right, that's, my, that's the end to my rabbit trail here. I was reluctant to launch down this path, but I know I'm just going to get flooded with emails and afterwards. So I, but but it's, it's a path that leads us to hints and answers to questions that we ask today, but it's really a path that takes us away from Paul's real point. So let's get back on the main road here. He's not trying to settle that argument. He's trying to deal with this issue to the Corinthians who were elevating gifts, really elevating themselves and their spirituality above others, uh, above other people. Paul gives them this devastating but loving blow. He says, love is greater. Love is greater than gifts because it lasts forever. Your gifts are ceasing. You understand that? Gifts are temporary. Love is ever. Just think of how sobering this would have sounded to their ears. They, they, were, they, they thought themselves so important, so spiritual because of their giftedness. So was all, their identity was all wrapped up in this. So now that he's saying these things that, that you, you've so prided yourself in, you've set yourself up above others because of these things, they're just, they're going to peter out. They're going to cease. So he, he gives some illustrations here to put these gifts into proper perspective. Verse 11, when I was a child, the word child there, it's a, it's a really diminutive form. It's when I was a little baby. Just a little baby. When I was a little baby, I spoke like a little baby. I thought like a little baby. I reasoned like a little baby. When I became a man, I gave up baby ways. The gifts, Paul says, they're, they're, they're for a time of, of immaturity. They're baby stuff. They're good. They have their place. Nothing wrong with baby stuff when you're a baby. But it's for a short time. We eventually leave them behind when we reach maturity. Now, it's tragic when we see grown-ups behaving like children still. But, but this, is, this is what Paul's saying. You're in danger of doing that. You're, you're clinging to these things that you're going to be giving up. They're going to cease when you come into manhood. Another illustration, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now this illustration is a little bit of a miss for us in our day because our mirrors are quite different than their mirrors. Again, they had these bronze workers in Corinth who were known actually for their mirrors. And so they would hammer out bronze and polish bronze so you get some shine and, and, and you have this, this dim, distorted reflection. It's not like the clear reflection if you go into our you know, restrooms and see this glass mirror and you can see exactly it's just mirror image but 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 he's, his point is that gifts are temporal they're they're dim reflections love is eternal love is face-to-face -face reality so he's saying why, why put so much emphasis on the gifts which are temporary why why fight and divide over these dim temporary reflections while neglecting love which is perfect and eternal and then his conclusion, verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, there's de debate about this, but I would just say, what makes love the greatest in this context? And the point he's making here, it's because love lasts longer. It's eternal. 
Even faith and hope have a shelf life. Faith will become sight. Hope will be realized. But love goes on and on and on for eternity. This is why love is so much greater than the gifts. Love is eternal. Before the first man was ever made, before all of this universe came into existence, God existed in this eternal, perfect love relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love, eternity past, it was there. Love reaches all the way back into eternity past, and it goes all the way to eternity future. And so the hope for us is that we are, we are being swept up into this continuous celebration of love within the Godhead and, 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 and of God and one another. So one writer says about this love, it's not a slice of heaven, but the whole pie. Love is in heaven, not as a tree and a prairie, but as the light on which the prairie is bathed on a bright morning, a bright summer morning. It's a pretty image. Love never ceases. It never goes out of date. It does not have a shelf life. Like God, it's everlasting. And so the, the church then, is, it, we're to be this outpost in time of what heaven will be for eternity. We fly the flag of the coming eternal kingdom. And so the main thing that must characterize us is love. Why? Because it lasts forever. Much longer than the gifts. Listen. This is an enormous passage. This is a passage that we just can't yawn because we heard it so many times in so many different settings. This is, this is a passage that really needs to be studied on our knees and applied on our knees. We have our, our church-wide prayer meeting tonight, our second one tonight, and so we want to invite everybody back at 6 p.m., and this is where we're going to focus our praying as it relates to love. I'll talk more about that in a moment, but I'm, I'm thankful for so many things about this church. I'm, I'm probably most thankful for our love for one another. Um, we don't do everything well. We, we have all kinds of weaknesses, I'm sure. Some that we know about, there are probably blind spots that we have that we're oblivious to. I'm sure there are. But I, I've seen love manifest in this church assembly, in this family, friendship, kindness, generosity, uh, encouragement, patience, forgiveness, endurance, and on and on and on. Not perfectly by any means, but love. Real tangible expressions of love. And I, I say, may we excel even more, church. And yet, that said, there's the commendation, much like we're going to see in the letters to Ephesus. Here's some, con here's some caution. With any shred of honesty about ourselves and self-examination, we have to confess, this passage lands pretty heavy on all of us. Not just the person in front of you, not the person across the aisle, you me and so it cuts a couple ways in particular and so that, I think that was Paul's intention with this chapter for the Corinthians but remember what we looked at last week I won't review that but they're kind of two different groups and struggling in different ways as they thought about gifts and superiority and inferiority so one while it's obviously a very challenging chapter it is it rebukes us it humbles us because we're not as loving as we should be listen there is also an encouragement here too and it's this any one of us can love. Understand that? 
You may be young or you may be old. You may be rich, you may be poor. You may be illiterate, you may be highly educated. You may be a Christian of 50 years or 50 days. You may be married, single, divorced, widowed. You may be extremely gifted and talented in all kinds of ways, or you may be seemingly untalented and modestly gifted. You may be sick, you may be well, you may be outgoing, you may be shy. You can just go on and on and on. But by God's grace and with His Spirit's enabling, you can love well. There's encouragement in that, church. This is the thing that matters most to God. You can be great in love. You can be great in patience and great in kindness and great in humility and great in hopefulness and great in endurance when the relationships are hard. You don't have to have a certain spiritual gift. You don't have to have a certain level of Bible knowledge. You don't need to have a certain kind of personality. You don't, you, you, you don't need to look a certain way. And again, this is the thing that matters to God. This is the thing that makes the biggest difference in the church. Young people, if you sit here today and, and, and you, children, youth, you, you, you've, got, you've got ability. You've got gifts. Thank God for those. Pray that more than all of your gifts, God will make you a loving person. A loving person. And if you feel, I, I got nothing, I got no gifts, I'm looking around and comparing myself, I got nothing. Listen, you pray to God that you will be a loving person. Whatever He's entrusted to you. Parents, pray this for your children. This is most important. Children, pray this for your parents. It doesn't like get easy as you get older. I'm finding this to be more and more the case. Uh, we can start to get grumpy and proud and, and irritable and impatient in new ways that we weren't when we were younger. We grow in some ways and we struggle in other ways. Love is not natural. Love is not possible on our own. But by God's grace and with the Spirit's help, we can love well. We can be a loving church. We may not excel in ways that other churches do. But we can love well, church. That's encouragement. So it's not only a rebuke. Here's the other way. It is a rebuke, though, isn't it? I mean, this call to love like this, it's a bar we cannot attain. It's, it, 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 we fall incredibly short. All of us do. I mean, I've royally messed up this morning. If you're walking away with your chest bowed out, you know, pounding it and thinking, man, I am one extraordinary lover. I have got this. I hope that's not the case. We all fall short of this call to love like this. And I have been painfully aware of that this week. The things I've thought, things I've said, things I've done, and things I've not done, not said. When we, when we think back, just let me illustrate this. When you think back of the greatest regrets on your life, however long you've lived, we can you can probably do this. What are the things your mind goes to? If you've lived a long time, this maybe you have an advantage here. It's not concerts we didn't attend it's not vacations we didn't take it's not business goals we didn't attain it's not wealth we didn't build what is it our deepest regrets probably are, are, are the times when we were cruel we were selfish we really hurt someone else uh, when we when we inflicted pain on someone close to us those are the things that really honest keep kind of keep us gnawed at a, a still even though we've asked the lord for forgiveness it's this is the stuff that bothers us as parents as children as siblings as friends as church members as a pastor this is the stuff that that, that i have regret on 
I think about these Corinthian believers decades later, maybe in their twilight years of their life and, and, and ready to meet the Lord any, any time now in their old age, whatever old age was at that time. But by God's grace, I imagine them saying to themselves, what were we thinking? What were we thinking? What, how ridiculous were we? Paul was 100% right. Love is far, far, far more the excellent way. And we were clinging to those temporary, less important gifts like they were everything. But here's the deal. The command, listen to this, the command to love carries with it no ability whatsoever to obey the command. You understand that? The command to love is law. And there's no power to obey in law. There's only one way to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as God commands us. And that's what? To look to Christ. To look to the cross where Jesus died for all of our sins, including our lovelessness. By his death on the cross, Christ offers forgiveness for all of my failures and your failures to love well. And then he pours out his spirit. He puts his love into my life so that I can begin at least to love the way he loves. It's his doing. Love for my neighbor begins when I behold the cross of Christ and consider his death for my sins. This is a consistent message in Scripture. And, and I just, let me just illustrate this, and we're done. The next time Paul write, wrote to the Corinthians, what we call 2 Corinthians, well, the next time it's recorded for us, he testified to the life-transforming love of Jesus which turns our affections for others inside out. It, it compels us to stop loving ourselves and to start loving one another. And here's what Paul said. Just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See what he's saying? That the power we have to love, it doesn't come from the command. It's going to do this. It doesn't come from within us. Like I'm going to muster up the strength to obey. It comes from the transforming power of the gospel, demonstrated by and demonstrated to us, provided for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and the power that's worked in us by His Spirit. That's where we comes. Let's pray. But we confess again, Lord, that, that, that this is love. We said it at the beginning, we say it now. This is love. Not that we love You, not that we love one another. That's not the standard. This is love that you loved us and you sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we pray, Lord, and we ask by your mercy that since you have so loved us, Lord, help us to love one another. This is how we know love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.